And thank you for joining me for the Way Forward podcast brought to you by me, Fliss Goldsmith and Co-Design Coaching, where we create your optimal life together. Today's episode is part two of our three-part mini-series that comes to you from my heart and soul. This is episode two in the Trauma Trials. In episode one of the trauma trials, I walked you through my personal experience of trauma. If you haven't listened to this yet, it is available on the replay, and it'll hopefully give you an idea of why I feel doubly qualified to talk to you about it. I feel doubly qualified to talk to you about trauma and the effects on our emotional well-being. So I want to begin today by exploring the idea That trauma is not just a psychological experience, but also a very physical one. The mind-body connection is well documented, and yet so many of us separate our mental and physical health. I'm going to give you a mini history lesson here. The reason that we do this was actually started by a chap called Descartes. You know, the chap who said, I think, therefore I am. So, back in the 17th century, he needed dead bodies to dissect further for his research. Except, you see, he wasn't allowed to do this because the Pope forbid it. You weren't allowed to dissect dead bodies because they belonged to God. So, Descartes theorised that actually the body and the mind were separate things and that the soul and the spirit existed in the mind so that this belonged to God, whereas the body was just a fleshy vehicle and disposable. The Pope quite liked this idea and bought into it, so he gave Descartes all the dead bodies he wanted. But this is where the split between the mind and body began. And if you want the full title, it's called Descartian Dualism. I digress, but you know, I do love a bit of background. So, fast forward to the 21st century, and we've really got to move past this self-serving theory of dear Descartes. We are one whole connected human, and psychological and physiological experiences affect one another in both directions. I work from the definition of trauma that psychiatrist and trauma researcher Bessel van der Kolk gives. Trauma is an inescapably stressful event that overwhelms people's existing coping mechanisms. Trauma gives rise to fear, horror, helplessness, and most importantly, powerlessness. Think about powerlessness for a moment. We can think of that as physical and mental powerlessness, and we can relate to both in that moment of trauma and from the time since. This powerlessness is actually part of a stress response that is incredibly effective in the short term, 
but dangerous to our health if continued long-term. I'd like you to think of yourself as having three states of being connected to the colours of a traffic light. The green state is where we want to be. This is the safe, social state that's been called the rest and digest or the feed and breed state. The amber state is where something challenging happens and our systems respond with stress hormones that mobilise us into action. The fight or flight state, where we either fend off or run from a perceived threat or attack. This state is necessary to deal with difficult situations and it usually settles back down into the green state once the immediate issue has been dealt with. The red state is the domain of trauma. The red state is where we become immobilised and frozen. Now, there's good reason for this. Think of the animal kingdom, where creatures often play dead to stop themselves being hunted. The brain is protecting us from something so horrifying that we are unable to process it. Life and death situation. The problem comes when the red state can't switch off, can't downgrade to amber or green. If you've experienced trauma and been left feeling numb, disconnected, apathetic, distant or empty then it's very likely that you are stuck on red. Often when we're stuck in the red state for a long time, we have a trauma worldview. And that means really that we see our world as being unsafe, that our reality isn't safe and that we are ineffective at handling life, and that this is the way it will always be because recovery isn't possible. This trauma lens skews our sense of time, place, person and purpose by lying to us. But it's stuck in this protection mode, you see. It's trying to help us, but it's stuck in a mode that should only be reserved for a very, very short time when the trauma's actually happening. Like with the animals, playing dead, being frozen for that short time until the hunters moved on. But it's in this chronic red state that we start to enter a place of learned helplessness. Now you're probably recoiling thinking, how dare you say that I've got learned helplessness. I know I certainly did when I studied it. But trauma survivors very often find themselves here, so stick with me, because if you are here, there definitely is a way out. Researcher Martin Seligman came up with the term learned helplessness. It came from results around an electric shock study conducted on animals. I must point out, I vehemently denounce any experiments on animals. However, the results of this study will be used to explain the term learned helplessness. So dogs were put into a cage where the floor was made of two different materials. One half was made of wood 
and the other half was made of metal. And small electric shocks were sent through the floor of uh, the cage. As you can imagine, you would be able to feel the electric shocks through the metal side, but not through the wooden side. So the dog moved from the metal side to the wooden side to avoid the pain from the electric shock. But then Seligman put a barrier in the way so that the dog could not get off the metal floor in the cage. The electric shocks were sent through the floor once again. To begin with, the dog tried to push past the barrier to get onto the wooden floor, but it couldn't. And in time, eventually, the dog stopped trying to move off the metal floor and laid down and accepted the shocks. Then Seligman removed the barrier. But the dogs did not try to move to the safety of the wooden floor anymore, despite the barrier having been removed. So learned helplessness is rife in trauma survivors because the barrier has been removed. That immediate threat is gone. And yet we remain accepting our physical and mental pain, our emotional disconnection, our overwhelm, our inability to function as we once did. And I know you're probably thinking, I'm not trying to feel like this. I would do anything to change this. And I completely believe you. The fact is that until you acknowledge you are in this red state, suffering from learned helplessness, you can't unlock the emotions and the processes that will bring that change that you desperately deserve. So the question is this. How? How do we move to a place of empowerment where we can actually influence our reactions to the day-to-day of life? How do we move off our own metal floor? How do we move to that place of safety and reassurance? The answer is multifaceted, and the good news is that it's accessible to anyone. We need to challenge our perceptions. Are we looking at situations through a trauma worldview lens? We need realisation that trauma is in the driving seat and it's steering us away from a connected and fulfilled life. We need to find a supportive space, a holding environment, where we can safely access and process and use these tools. Now that could be a therapist, a coach, a group, but just make sure it's somewhere you can be your authentic self and safe in your exploration of your trauma. The second part of this episode is all about somatization, which basically means the presentation of psychological distress as physical symptoms. I bet most of you have heard of phantom limb pain, where someone has sadly required an amputation of, say, an arm or leg, and yet months and even years after the operation, they still experience pain in the limb that's no longer even there. Trauma expert and survivor Carolyn Spring puts it like this. You don't need to have a body 
to feel a body. All pain exists in the brain. It's what allows us to translate pain signals into the sensation of pain. So we cut our finger and it hurts. We fall down the stairs and it hurts. When we experience trauma, it hurts. The pain has to be processed in the body. And for psychological pain, our emotions are the processing point of that pain. The trouble is that being in the red state of frozen trauma means we're cut off from this ability. The mental pain is unable to find its way out. It becomes stuck and unprocessed and so the physical manifestations of pain begin. Trauma survivors have a high rate of fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue syndrome, irritable bowel syndrome, migraine and other pain-mediated conditions. These are very real illnesses and our brain has a huge role to play in managing them. I want to note that the somatization of pain is an entirely natural and unconscious process. There's no stigma or shame to having physical pain and illness as a result of your trauma. It is not a weakness. It is something that you can move out of or through, at least to a place of management and empowerment. Trauma survivors have a pain dial that is set on hypervigilance, meaning that it's always on the lookout for pain. It's also hypersensitive, which means that things which should cause a low level of pain are interpreted as causing agonising pain via the brain through the body. Pain disorders, then, are very common for trauma survivors. And this comes down to the fact that traumatised people have emotional dysregulation and stunted emotional communication. Again, this is a protection mechanism of that red state. It was literally saving your life. It had no time for non-essentials in that moment. Keeping the heart pumping, the lungs breathing and your proximity safe was all it could be concerned with. Now, however, in the aftermath, it's forgotten to turn the other very essential mechanisms back on. Many people, trauma-experienced or not, have trouble identifying their different emotions. Four is apparently the average different emotions that are identified, and they are mad, sad, bad and glad, or angry, depressed, ashamed and happy. There's some level of disagreement between researchers about how many emotions there are, but 27 distinct emotions are definite, and there are probably many more. Well, why is it important to be able to identify the different emotions? Language is power. If we can connect language to our emotions and experiences, then we've got a greater control of how they affect us and the outcomes that follow. Take shame and guilt, for example. Now, these two are very often mixed up, but they are fundamentally different concepts. Guilt speaks to having done something bad, whereas shame speaks to us being something bad. Knowing the difference 
changes everything. If it's guilt, then the chances are you need to apologise for what you did and then understand how to avoid repeating the situation. If it's shame, then it's likely that you've been given this sense of shame by somebody else and it's rooted in a lack of self-awareness and compassion. So you need to work on your emotional story to overcome that one. The outcomes are totally different and both can remedy the two emotions, but only if they're identified correctly in the first place. Think on it and you'll start to see how getting really specific with naming your emotions will make a massive difference really, really quickly. The longer we ignore the need to understand and access our repressed emotions, the worse our overall health gets. The condition of struggling to know and name our emotions actually has a name itself. Alexithemia. Now, you know that I am not into sitting here in the swamp without offering you a raft out of here. So here is what you need to do to start that healing process and to start moving out of the red state. Get super curious. Start taking notes about yourself. Write down how you feel. What's been happening Identify the different emotions. What is it you're feeling? Look for patterns. Are there things that happen again and again? Look for things that trigger certain emotions. Are there people there that create a disconnection and a retreat into your trauma worldview? Write down what you're dreaming about. Are there clues as to... What needs to come out and how? You can use a journal to keep your notes together. Make sure to have a self-check-in every day, even if it's just running through your mind. How is today for me and why? Look out for red flags and write them down. What is your body telling you? Are you struggling to sleep? Are you neglecting your self-care? Are you avoiding contact? These are signs that your emotional wellness is declining and you must address it now. Be your own trauma detective. Access support, whether that be a talking therapy, a podcast, a self-help book, an emotional coach or a group setting. But do not carry on alone. We are in this together, truly together. Now, I've put some advice lines and helplines in the show notes that could be of help, and they've got a variety of access options for you, from phone calls to emails and even web chat. However, I must stress, if you feel you are in crisis, please call 999 and get help right away. Your life is precious. Do all you can to protect it. So that's it for this week. Thank you for choosing to spend your time with me. And of course, if you want to work in a fully supported way on your emotional well-being, then head to codesignwithfliss.com and we can talk more about the empowerment that you deserve. Now we know more about surviving trauma and now we know the way forward.
Thank you.